Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. It's M&N. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 29th, and you've joined us for our last show of National Security This Week for 2021. This is our 52nd straight show. So for 52 weeks, we've been coming to you every single Wednesday morning to cover this topic. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. If you've been a faithful listener each week, you've no doubt heard me discuss a few concepts throughout the year. Terms like the tools of national power, the policy strategy match, means and ends, hard and soft power, grand strategy, and many others. I've been wanting to host a show dedicated to the discussion of national security strategy and the concept of grand strategy throughout this entire year, and today we are delivering. Our guests today are two esteemed and astute scholars of strategic thought, and we're going to have an in-depth discussion today on the topic of the policy strategy match and the concept of grand strategy. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, we're going to have a Ph.D.-level discussion today, so pour yourself another cup of coffee, sit up and pay attention. You won't be disappointed. Our first guest is Dr. Stephen Walt. Stephen M. Walt is the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He previously taught at Princeton University and the University of Chicago, where he served as Master of the Social Science Collegiate Division and Deputy Dean of Social Sciences. Stephen Walt has been a resident associate of the Carnegie Endowment for Peace and a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution, and he's also served as a consultant for the Institute of Defense Analyses, the Center for Naval Analyses, and the National Defense University. Dr. Walt presently serves on the editorial boards of Foreign Policy, International Relations, and the Journal of Cold War Studies, and he also serves as co-editor of the Cornell Studies and Security Affairs, published by Cornell University Press. His book, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, co-authored with John J. Mearsheimer, was a New York Times bestseller and has been translated into more than 20 foreign languages. His most recent book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. Our other guest today has been with us once before, back in October, when we discussed civil-military relations. Dr. Ron Krebs is professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. A widely published expert on international relations and international security, he is best known for his insights into national security strategy, the politics of national security, the effects of war on democracy, presidential leadership, and military and society. Ron Krebs is author of the award-winning Narrative and the Making of U.S. National Security and is co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Grand Strategy. Dr. Krebs is editor-in-chief of the leading scholarly journal Security Studies. If you're near a computer right now and you'd like to learn more about Professor Ron Krebs' writing and research products, you can visit www.ronkrebs.com while you're listening to our show. And you might do the same in a Google search for Professor Stephen Walt. Dr. Stephen Walt, welcome to National Security This Week. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
And Ron Krebs, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you again. Thanks for having me, John. And where are you, gentlemen, this morning? Uh, Stephen, where are you? I'm speaking to you from Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, where I'm enjoying Christmas break. All right. And Ron, you're where? I'm in my office at the Chile University of Minnesota. It's, as you know, John, it's pretty cold up here. Yeah, I'm looking at my computer right now, and the uh, temperature indicator on my my little app says it's minus seven degrees outside. So uh, it's a chilly morning. <laughs> so, gentlemen, we have a lot of ground to cover today, but I'm pretty confident we can get through everything I've planned. Uh, I'm also hoping to have a little bit more of a freewheeling discussion today. So, in other words, rather than me just asking questions of you like we often do on this show, uh, maybe I can frame a topic a bit and we can have a, a bit of a wide-ranging dialogue. Is, does that sound okay to both of you? Perfect. Okay. okay. Uh, we obviously should lay a little groundwork for our audience so they understand the language of, of this uh, national security dialogue we're about to have. Uh, learn a little bit about the terms, and then we can kind of dive into our primary topic today of grand strategy. So let, let's start with some of the basics. Uh, Ron, I'll, I'll ask you to take the first two, and, and Stephen, if you can follow up with a second. Ron, how would you describe what America's tools of national power are? Uh, maybe we can start with what they are, and we can dive later into how, how they're used in statecraft. Sure. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that when we think about the kinds of power resources that states bring into the international arena, we understandably think first and foremost, John, of those basic material tools of power, the kinds of military resources they have. But of course, um, as Machiavelli once famously said, the uh, money is the sinews of power. And while countries like the United States have huge forces in being, uh, wealthy countries have the capacity to create lots of military power and also have substantial tools of economic statecraft at their disposal. Um, and, of course, there's also diplomacy. And as we've become more attentive to, I think, in recent years, there's also sort of information as an important component and tool of state power. I think we might later refer to notions of sort of soft power, which isn't just which isn't really about the purposeful manipulation of information, but it's really about a kind of a somewhat gauzy, broad sense of cultural appeal. Yeah. which also plays a role as well, a kind of in the ideological bases of power. Yeah. And these tools of statecraft can be combined in all sorts of various and interesting ways, both as carrots and sticks, that is to say, as inducements and punishments, but also in ways that shape might either shape the immediate calculations and the behavior of other entities in the international system, or that's to say can really shape their behavior directly, or rather shaping the larger context of action that limits the autonomy and shapes the choices that are available to others in the international yeah. arena. And, and Steve, what, what are your thoughts on, on those tools of national power? Um, I think Ron's given a pretty good summary here. I mean, the taproot of national power is, in fact, economic strength. Uh, you know, having a large, sophisticated economy provides all sorts of influence in lots of different ways. Other countries want access to the American market, and that's a source of leverage. Uh, you can't have a lot of military power without having a strong economy. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you don't see Bolivia being one of the world's great <laughs> uh, military powers, not because there's anything wrong with Bolivians, but because it's just uh, just too small. Um, and those things do make a big difference when it comes to conducting diplomacy. Uh, George Kennan once nicely uh, put it, says you, you have no idea how much it contributes to the general politeness and pleasantness of diplomacy to have a little quiet armed force in the background. So 
those, uh, those components of hard power, I think, are really important. I'd add just two other things, maybe three. Uh, one is, uh, you know, big economies, uh, powerful countries also exert something of a cultural shadow. On the United States, this has been an asset for a long time. The fact that television, media, uh, journalism, Hollywood, all cast a rather large uh, uh, shadow over the rest of the world. Uh, America's system of higher education is a source of influence as well. Foreign students coming to study here, things like that. Uh, number four, uh, having a reputation for competence. Uh, is an element of power. When other states uh, believe that your judgment is pretty good, that taking your advice is likely to produce uh, good outcomes, you can deliver on your uh, promises. Uh, that helps uh, as well. Uh, and that's obviously critical uh, to, dipl to diplomatic effectiveness. And then I'll throw one last one in, and that's uh, political unity. Uh, that doesn't require a hundred percent consensus, uh, you know, for all uh, members of, of a society to agree. But deep divisions, high levels of polarization, uh, do undermine national power in a whole variety of ways, and that's something I think Americans need to be worried about, uh, given the current condition of the country. So when I was spirit, a yeah, go John, ahead. in the spirit of this freewheeling conversation, yep, yep absolutely. Um, let me sort of, um, I'd like to just sort of make two, a uh, couple quick points. Um, I mean, everything that Steve said is, of course, absolutely right. I think it is uh, typical for Americans to think that there is something uniquely appealing about our ideology. And I think Steve rightly put it that it's large countries cast, as he put it, a cultural shadow. We often underestimate how influential the Soviet Union was around the world. Communism was the rhetoric of revolution around the world. And until well into the 1980s, if you were somewhere in what we used to call the third world, that was quite appealing as a model. It's only in the 1980s that that appeal began to wane. Mm -hmm. So there is a way in which I wouldn't say just it is, yes, large countries, but also those where things seem to be going pretty well. And of course, when things started falling apart for the Soviet Union, the appeal of that model declined as well. While it is true, as Steve put it, that only large countries can become great military powers, countries can really choose to invest very heavily in one particular power resource and therefore have outsized influence in a particular way, especially in their region. North Korea, not a great economy, a whole lot less vibrant than South Korea's. And yet the South Koreans uh, make all their decisions in the shadow of those 100,000 missiles that are pointed at Seoul. That's true. Um, I think it's worth pointing to three sort of challenges that we think about when we think about those elements of national power and those tools of statecraft. One is the challenge of coordination across tools of statecraft, right? We're a lot better at thinking about how one of these things works than how they work in combination with each other. Two, right, again, problems of coordination across different spaces. That is, we're a lot better about thinking about how do we apply one tool of statecraft in one place and are not so great about thinking about its reverberations mm. elsewhere. And third, and I think this is something we'll probably want to talk about quite a bit, has to do with the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. That is, when one tool of statecraft um, becomes your, is your large hammer and all the world is your nail and the dangers of that. That's absolutely true. Uh, so I would just summarize very quickly for our, our listeners. Uh, so there's a term that we use in, in national security world called DIME, which stands for diplomacy, information, military, and economic power. And statecraft, I, I would say, is the term 
uh, that describes how these tools are applied. It's the art of applying the science inside each of the four elements of DIME to actual real-world challenges confronting a nation. Uh, so that said, uh, and, and Ron, you, you touched on it, that problem of uh, the interagency coordination process. Uh, let me ask the two of you. The, the, there are some national security documents that have to be produced by the administration every year. We're getting ready, uh, as far as I understand it. Jake Sullivan, the current national security advisor, should be coordinating the new uh, national security strategy under the Biden administration. What is the national security strategy, and how is it used inside the U.S. government to guide executive branch actions vis-a-vis our allies, friends, and and others? Um well, I'll take a swing at this one. I mean, the national security strategy is something that the White House is required to produce. Uh, it's, I think, a requirement of the 1986 Goldwater-Nichols Defense Reform Act. Yep. And it is an opportunity for the White House to lay out its vision of key national security goals and policies, which in theory are then supposed to shape how the Pentagon writes the national military strategy how it performs the quadrennial defense review, uh, et cetera. They are basically statements of an administration's worldview. Uh, I think they aren't always a reliable guide to what an administration will actually do. Nope. <laughs> I think they do have some bureaucratic Im- impact. In other words, people fighting for budget share in Washington can point to the White House national security strategy. Look, here's what the president says he wants. You should give me $5 billion more dollars. Uh, here's what he said is only on page 47. Maybe we can cut something, uh, t- cut something there. Uh, but they aren't always a reliable guide to what any administration is going to do, in part because you write the documents and then you have to try and respond to events as they occur in, in different places. So again, they're important windows and people in our business usually study them pretty carefully, but there should be a certain amount of skepticism attached to the, to the extent to which they really tell you what an administration is going to do in foreign policy or even defense policy. Yeah. And, and Ron, is it really an actual strategy or is it more a statement of uh, policy objectives, broad policy objectives in that national security strategy? Well, that's the problem. I mean, this gets into something we were going to talk about a little later about what do we mean by strategy? So since let me just sort of take start from that point. Sure. Strategy is essentially strategy is the stock and trade of what folks like Steve and I like to do, because strategy is fundamentally a theory of victory. It's a story about how the state can cause security for itself, to quote one of our colleagues, Barry Posen. It's about how do you align means and ends, right? And therefore, it is fundamentally a set of ideas. Now, the value of strategy in principle, and we'll get to grand strategy later, is that strategy, we tend to think that strategy tells you about what you're going to do. But in fact, the greatest value of strategy is that it's supposed to tell you what you shouldn't do, what you should not devote resources to. And we have a lot of trouble with that in the United States. That's partly because we're so big and so wealthy. Um, And so this national security strategy document, very rarely, I challenge you to look at that national security strategy document and find a statement almost ever of what it is that we won't do. The ones that stick out in our minds are the ones that say something really unique like the Bush administration's 2002 national security strategy. That was unusual. And it told us a lot, I think it's fair to say, about what at least the first Bush administration how it thought about the world in the wake of 9-11. It's a very different document than they would have written before 9-11, that is obviously. True. That is very true. 
The fundamental point there is that the strategy document, therefore it was revealing, but it was exceptional. If you look across administrations, they are very, very similar. And they rarely make the hard choices that we would want them to make. That's partly because we're big. That's partly because of this drafting process that is sort of all-inclusive. And everybody gets, and it's this sort of negotiated document. And there's a trade-off there, John. The more inclusive that drafting process is, the fewer hard choices get made. Because everyone in the bureaucracy wants something they can hand their hat on. Very rarely, I am not aware of too many programs in the government that have been cut because they didn't seem to fit the national security strategy. There's enough in there. Yeah, it shapes bureaucratic politics because you hang your hat on it. But there's so much in there you can hang your hat on almost anything. That's true. That's true. And we we need to keep pressing through these uh, sort of these terms and definitions so we can get to the the. the the core of our discussion today. Uh, Dr. Walt, how about define for us the terms hard, soft, sharp, and smart power? Maybe you can take two and Ron can take the other two. Uh, well, let me go. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dissent slightly from this. I mean, hard power, I think, refers to material resources, uh, you know, the economic strength, the military capabilities. Uh, you know, you could even probably trace it to things like natural resources and, and, and things like that. Uh, soft power uh, is a term coined by my colleague, uh, jo- Joseph Nye, uh, basically referring to the other ways in which states can influence each other. Um, persuasiveness, the attractiveness of your political economic model. Um, and I think, you know, Joe captured something about what goes on in, in international politics. I have never found terms like sharp power or smart power very useful at all. I mean, what's the alternative to smart power? Dumb power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, who, who's going to be in favor of that? And and sharp power, which is, you know, another uh, recent coinage, uh, is is really a terrible term. It refers to the use of censorship and other tools to enhance authoritarian influence. But of course, that's not really what sharp means. What's the counterpart to that? Dull power? (laughs) Um, So I I fear that, you know, measuring power is hard enough. It's actually something that our business doesn't do particularly well. And simply adding a lot of modifiers to it, I think, clutters up the conceptual landscape. You know, we'll get clever power, agile power, powerful power, techno power, etc. You know, I think we'd be better off with a somewhat simpler vocabulary and not just multiplying more of these ideas. But uh, Ron may have a different view. No, in that sense, I entirely agree with Steve. I think what's less useful than those terms is what's more useful, excuse me, is thinking about how are these various power resources used to shape the behavior, the worldviews, the opportunities available to others acting in the international arena. So we might think instead about, as I mentioned earlier, shaping decisions directly, shaping background conditions. Part of the attempt, as terrible a term as it is, and the proliferation is not valuable, this notion of sharp power was really trying to get at how power is being used to, in quite creative ways that I think it's fair to say, Steve, that international relations scholars had not given a lot of attention to before 2016, which is how to shape the domestic politics within other states, and more broadly, simply to undermine trust in government and to accentuate polarization. 
in the wake of 2016, right, we all became increasingly attentive to the ways in which this had historical roots, but it's not something that scholars had paid a lot of attention to. So we might think instead about, John, about how power is being used to do what, rather than, as I agree with Steve, proliferating different forms of talk about different kinds of power. So if I could summarize maybe for our listeners, uh, we'd mentioned earlier that statecraft is that application of the tools of national power, diplomacy, information, military, and economic tools. Uh, And then these terms, hard, soft, sharp, and smart power, are sort of ways in which those, in which statecraft is applied uh, to challenges around the world. Uh, And so that's probably a good foundation uh, for for now before we get into the the heart of this discussion. Uh, For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Stephen Walt and Professor Ron Krebs, and we're discussing American national security and the concept of grand strategy. So we've talked about uh, some of these terms. We we mentioned policy a little while ago. Policy strategy match, uh, that, that tends to be a, a very difficult concept, uh, but even bigger concept is grand strategy. Can, can each of you sort of define what your thoughts are on, on what grand strategy actually is as a definition? And, and Ron, we'll start with you, and Steve, you can go second. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, strategy is about how we align means and ends. It's the ideas that we bring as to how these are going to work together and how they're going to be in alignment. You can have really grand ambitions, <laughs> but have absolutely no way to pursue them. Um, and that's, of course, very typical across the world. Grand strategy sort of takes that simply to the next. We might have strategies that are economic strategies, military strategies, diplomatic strategies. Grand strategy is essentially how do we take the totality of national means and bring them into alignment with our goals. And strategy is therefore the theory of victory, again, about how you call grand strategy and how you cause security for yourself. Whenever we talk about grand strategy, there is this inevitable nautical metaphor that grand strategy is the North Star by which you guide the ship of state through the roiling seas of global politics, pardon all that purple prose. Uh, And that the idea is that, you know, while necessarily you might have to guide the ship differently to avoid rough patches in the water, you're going to keep your eye on that North Star. So that's the principle about why it is that grand strategy is so valuable, because it keeps you, even as you're getting tacking to, to and fro with the domestic political winds, with international pressures, you're keeping your eye on what it is that you are ultimately seeking to do. And Steve? Um, well, as Ron said, it's a strategy is a plan for connecting means and ends. It's a plan to accomplish a set of goals by taking specific steps you think are going to lead to that uh, desired objective. Taking into account, and this is really critical, taking into account the anticipated reactions of other significant actors. It's not just a linear plan to we'll do X and it'll uh, yield what we want. We have to also ask what others are likely to do in response to what what we've done. Uh, And uh, Ron mentioned uh, Barry Posen's definition, you know, grand strategy is a state's theory for how to create security for itself. What conditions in the world must that state create or try to foster in order to be secure? What steps should it then take to try and create those conditions? 
And this is not exclusively military, although there's usually a military element to it. It also uh, refers to what national resources you have to mobilize, what relations you're going to try to make with other countries. Do you have to try and divide uh, adversaries? Do you have to try and recruit a set of allies or or worm your way into the good graces of some other country? Uh, What sorts of economic relations uh, do you think require must be fostered? So, you know, after World War II, not only did the United States States adopt containment, it adopted a program of trying to promote a liberal economic order, at least amongst most of its allies, which it regarded as critical not only for its own economic prosperity, but also for the domestic stability of those countries and their ability uh, to resist the temptations of communism. And that was part of American uh, grand strategy, too. Uh, so, again, I think it's it's the big picture, if you will, uh, the set of objectives that have to be uh, met. And as we'll probably talk about a little bit later, uh, I think also embedded in that uh, is the underlying logic that sort of pulls all of those objectives together and explains why they are both feasible, but why they're also necessary and desirable. So I, I, I might say... Um... You know, you both of you touched on it, but uh, it, it sort of likens it to throwing a, a stone into a pond. That first immediate reaction is a big splash, but then you don't. You have to think about the third and fourth order effects of your actions, and that's the ripple effect uh, going out to the shores and the impacts on the shores beyond. Uh, so, is there a time component as part of a grand strategy concept, or or not? Uh, if I think if you have the luxury, yes. I mean, um, you know, there are going to be some circumstances where the wolf is really at the door and grand strategy involves trying to assemble your various resources to try and deal with that immediate problem, whether it's, you know, Nazi Germany or Soviet expansionism or, or whatever. There are other times when you have to, t- you're able to take a somewhat longer view and try to use resources to craft a set of arrangements that are likely to endure and help provide security over the longer term. Um, you can afford to, say, be a little bit more choosy and be more uh, more long-term oriented. But I think the degree to which grand strategy um, can, you know, can take time into account uh, depends a lot on the circumstances. Yeah, and what do you think, Ron? Uh, I absolutely agree, but I think that also provides a nice transition to what makes grand strategy so very, very difficult. Because the longer you take that temporal view, the more, as you say, you have to think about those sort of multiple moves down the chessboard. Uh, And the more moves you have down the chessboard, the harder it is to actually have a strategy and to be able to pursue it consistently. The great strategist, not a grand strategist, but the great military strategist, Karl von Clausewitz, used to speak of the fog of war. Right, that war has a sort of a moment of fundamental unpredictability. Because, as Steve said, you have to think about not just what you want to do, but what the other is going to do. That's right. But that makes this whole venture really, really difficult. Right? That's one of the reasons that it's so difficult. Combine that, as you say, with the temporal component. Um, and, you know, we can talk about other, I don't know if you want, John, to talk about other reasons that grand strategy is so difficult. But I think that's one of the reasons that this is really hard to pursue in practice. Why don't we talk briefly, so we've discussed a little bit about the interagency process. When, when the, and, and one of the components, Stephen, that you mentioned was a, sort of a political unity approach. When, when the executive branch in our government uh, tries to implement uh, these, uh, these objectives, uh, a national security strategy, 
statements of policy objectives and then a strategy to implement it. How? Why is it so hard for the executive branch to implement that strategy with regards to American foreign policy outcomes just on the internal side? And then we can talk a little bit more about the external side later. I, I was going to start with the external side. Just to, you know, it's a big and complicated world and there's enormous uncertainty. But, but looking inside, you know, all sorts of things begin to happen immediately to make life more difficult for the administration, regardless of which administration right. it is. It will immediately face partisan objections from people in the other party. It will face opposition from different interest groups uh, that are not going to be happy with the direction of policy. So, uh, Donald Trump, when he started his trade war with China, you know, suddenly American farmers, Silicon Valley and Wall Street were all opposed to this idea because it was contrary uh, to their immediate interests. People will raise the question of fiscal constraints. Can we afford what you're trying to do? Um, there will then be all the usual po- problems of implementation, no matter how good our military is, no matter how skilled our diplomats, some things are going to not work out quite the way uh, you intended. And then uh, last but not least, you have the problem that other countries aren't necessarily going to react the way you anticipated. You might even have failed to anticipate what they uh, they might do. My favorite example of this, of course, being the Russian reaction to uh, American support for Ukraine as uh, joining the EU or signing an accession agreement with the EU. As near as I can tell, nobody in the Obama administration really anticipated that Russia might object to this strongly enough to go out and seize Crimea. Right. <laughs> right? And, and that was a case where we had a, you know, something of a strategy. You could tell a story for why that was in America's interest, et cetera. But we'd left one rather critical part out of our uh, calculations. And Ron, what do you think? You can cover both. I, in, in, I would just add to that um, uh, bureaucratic politics. Right. The bureaucracy, Donald Trump gave it, a, gave it a great name, right? The deep state as if we're somehow inherently opposed to him. In fact, is every, every executive, every president uh, and every uh, secret member of the cabinet has to deal with substantial bureaucratic interests, visions of how they think the world operates and should operate and their own sense of mission and their own desire to acquire more resources. So the bureaucracy not only affects your ability to implement it, but of course, the bureaucracy provides you with information that you critically need, and it shapes one's conception of what are the available opportunities. But, you know, the real, again, I want to go back to there. There are two really, really important reasons, I think, that grand strategy is difficult for external reasons. One, as Steve said, the world's an incredibly complex place. We think about grand strategy in terms of weighing risks. If you want, this is supposed to be a tool for rationally designing, bringing means and ends into alignment. But very often, we just don't even have a way of calculating what are the risks involved in those various alternatives. Um, you know, we, that's, there's a, it's not just a matter of risk where we can calculate. These are fundamental uncertainties. And at the end of the day, the world, it does not behave the way you might wish, right? And that presents all sorts of opportunities. No question that Barack Obama was elected on a platform and desperately wanted to get out of the Middle East. Donald Trump felt the same. And what ended up happening to both of them? They ended up finding themselves back in the Middle East. Yeah. One of the administrations that I think most international relations scholars, I think it's fair to say, have more admiration for rather than less is the Truman administration at the start of the Cold War. But the Truman administration, very quick, even though it was supposedly uh, believed that there were certain areas of the world that were more valuable rather than not, 
One of those areas excluded from the American defensive perimeter was Korea. Lo and behold, Atchison, Dean Atchison, the Secretary of State at the time, gives a speech excluding Korea from the defensive perimeter. And when North Korea invades South Korea very qu- in 1950, very quickly, the United States finds itself back in Korea, an area that it expressly excluded from its defensive perimeter. So from Truman to Obama, right, the world may be interested in the portions of the world may be interested in you, even if you are not interested, according <laughs> to your grand strategy in portions of the world. That's a great point. I, I, when I uh, when I teach these these courses, these national security courses at, at Carleton College and whatnot, one of the things I try to get the students to understand is when you start to talk about this policy strategy match on the part of the U.S. government, you can consider this concept of uh, a chess grandmaster. Now, you can see a chess grandmaster play, I don't know, 30 or 40 lesser players all at the same time and be effective in winning pretty much all of those games. But when we're talking about this this concept of the policy strategy match against other pretty strong or, or evenly or, or fairly strong powers around the world, these are grandmasters all playing each other at the same time on the chessboard of the world, and it's a very complex problem set. Uh, so far, I would actually just add to that, Steve. The problem's more, uh, John. This problem's more complicated because there are multiple interrelated chessboards. That's right. Chess <laughs> is a simple game compared to international politics. That's a good point. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Uh, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Stephen Walt and Professor Ron Krebs, and we're discussing American national security and the concept of grand strategy. Uh, so, gentlemen, we've had a great discussion so far. Uh, I think we've pretty much uh, hit all the foundational uh, concepts that I wanted to talk about, and I think it's time now to get into the great debate of of American national security circles today. Uh, and, and for folks uh, listening, this is the Ph.D.-level discussion uh, that I was mentioning in my opening. All right, so gentlemen, here's the here's the big question for each of you to answer. <clears throat> and uh, Ron, I'll give you the first crack at this. Does America need a grand strategy? All right, thanks. Um, <laughs> look, I think there are uh, multiple reasons. Not only the grand strategy is difficult; we've discussed those, um, but the grand strategy has become really, really hard. And it's not clear that all of this is what this discussion of grand strategy is good for. So let me lay out those reasons and bear with me for a moment. Sure. And then I do, I do suspect that Steve and I have been right now engaged in a lovely conversation of mutual <laughs> agreement and mutual admiration. But I have a feeling that's about to come to an end. Um, one reason is that grand strategy by its very nature, there's something very appealing about it. It's focused at the 10,000 foot level. We talk about grand strategies like um, uh, liberal internationalism, selective engagement, the quest for primacy or restraint. There is, but on a whole bunch of really crucial questions that matter to the well-being of the United States and to our national security, or there's not really a fundamental disagreement across those grand strategies. One of the central challenges of our time, unquestionably, is climate change. Those Grand strategies, as far as I know, and it affects U.S. national security greatly, ask the Defense Department. But they don't have a lot to say about this. When it comes to existing U.S. alliances, even advocates of U.S. restraint, except at the extremes, are not calling, for the most part, for abandoning American alliances. These are really disagreements about the extent of the American footprint around the world and stuff like that. 
Those are important questions, surely, but they are not the be-all and end-all of foreign policy. Point two, the political impediments to effecting grand strategy have simply become immense. Grand strategy works best in a world that is fairly predictable, both internationally and domestically. Steve spoke earlier of the ways in which unity is valuable for the way one projects influence around the world. But it isn't accidental that the U.S. probably came closest, and even then I would contest it, to pursuing something like a grand strategy. When its policymaking in the foreign policy arena was less democratic and more bipartisan. But a more democratic, highly polarized foreign policy has rendered foreign policymaking really difficult. There is very little of a shared worldview today across the political parties. And therefore, what you really anticipate is simply reversal from one administration to the next in certain key ways, right? Whipsawing. And that whipsawing doesn't do much, of course, for one's reputation around the world, as Steve suggested. But it also means questions, what's the value of grand strategy? That idea that across, you have to have in a sort of, again, that enduring North Star to guide the ship of state. Third, the world has become, in critical ways, simply much less predictable. Uh, military power certainly matters, but in critical ways, um, the great power war, at least some of us would argue, has largely been taken off the table. We have multiple chessboards, not a single one, and power is, even more than before, really domain-specific. So how much, again, does grand strategy tell us in this really fluid, interactive world. If we are tacking so much with the winds that we're constantly altering and adapting the strategy, then what really remains of its core? Final point, and this I think is where Steve and I may really disagree. Um, I'm not sure that the historical record bears out that the U.S. has done especially well when it has consistently pursued a grand strategy. On the one hand, when the U.S. has had a clear strategy combating global communism. That got us into war in Vietnam, right? The great, one of arguably the greatest tragedy of the Cold War. We had a, the Bush administration had a very clear grand strategy in the war on terror. And that ended up getting us, as they understood it, into the war in Iraq. Second, lots of really great policies, perhaps some of the greatest uh, achievements of U.S. foreign policy over the last 70 years have come about through improvisation. Um, historical accounts of early Cold War containment, the ways in which the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, uh, managed the end of the Cold War. These were really stories about improvisation. Now, I think grand strategy is good for something, but it isn't good for what it's supposed to be good for. It's supposed to be good for, right, ideally, you bring a lot of people, smart people together, they design the strategy, and that shapes policy all the way down. What grand strategy is really good for is as a way of thinking about what's wrong with our foreign policy. It is a tool of critique. How are our ends and means not in alignment and where have we gone wrong? And in the hands of thoughtful critics like Steve Walt, grand strategy is a fantastic intellectual resource for thinking about the ways in which US foreign policy has gone wrong. But as a way of designing government policy, I, I'm not sure that grand strategy either has deeply shaped U.S. foreign policy, should shape U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, the greatest lesson I would say of U.S. foreign policy over the last 70 years is when you have 
deep, a grand strategy that really shapes that, as we say, whole of government approach, watch out, because it can really go very, very bad. And, and Steve Walt, uh, case for the defense. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, the question being, does America need a grand strategy? Yes, it does. That doesn't mean it's going to get one. And if it doesn't have one or, God forbid, it has a bad one, uh, then we will all suffer. Uh, but the idea that you don't need a basic worldview, a basic set of priorities uh, to structure and guide one's thinking about uh, foreign policy, I, I think, is is fallacious. If you don't have one of those, uh, then you get blown from crisis to crisis, trying to put out brush fires. You can't uh, stick to whatever plan you might uh, come up with. You end up doing things in one place that make it harder to do uh, other things someplace else. Um, and, you know, Ron pointed out to these successful examples of improvisation, uh, the Truman administration and uh, Bush 41 administration. Uh, they were not just uh, randomly coming up with ideas. Uh, they actually did have a, a worldview that structured their ability to improvise to unexpected uh, events uh, as well. Uh, and in fact, they didn't get distracted by a variety of things uh, that could have blown them off course in ways that some other administrations uh, were. I mean, grand strategies do need to be well thought out. Again, it's not just a set of goals or commitments. There has to be an underlying logic that explains why those things are important. Um, and I'll give you sort of three uh, possibilities. Uh, you know, one has been uh, a sort of a realist approach to grand strategy, which would focus primarily on the balance of power in key strategic regions. And I would argue that, in fact, has been what drove most of American grand strategy since we became a great power around 1900. That's why the United States got into World War I to maintain a balance of power in Europe. It's why we ultimately got into World War II to maintain a balance of power in Europe and Asia. And it's why we waged the Cold War as well to prevent the Soviet Union from dominating Europe and Asia. That was the big framework that structured how the United States engaged with much of the world. There were places obviously where we had to improvise. There were some inconsistencies, but I would argue that was our grand strategy that US policymakers largely saw the world in those terms, and it was pretty successful. Not 100% successful. There were some uh, stupid departures, of which <laughs> Vietnam is probably one of the best uh, illustrations. Uh, but by and large, it worked remarkably well uh, for the United States. Now, you could have an alternative grand strategy based on saying, look, the most important thing for the United States is to promote democracy. Uh, around the world, because if we can create a world that's all liberal democracies, that would be very peaceful, very harmonious, very prosperous, etc. And you could base your grand strategy on that. That would lead to some different decisions than a grand strategy based, say, on the balance of power. Or pick a third alternative. You could say all of these other things don't matter. What really does matter is climate change, facing all of humanity, including every American. And if we don't get that one right, then we're really in trouble or future generations are going to be really in trouble. So therefore, we shouldn't uh, be engaged in a great power rivalry with China. We should be cooperating with China to address climate change. If we want to get back to great power competition, we'll do that in the next century once we've solved the climate change uh, problem. You could have a grand strategy based uh, on that. My point is not to argue for any of these ones. It's to say that if you're trying to organize your thinking and be able to organize all those tools of government in a relatively consistent fashion and a relatively successful fashion, you need to have a worldview. You need to have a theory that connects the different issues uh, out there. Now, 
He's exactly right that given the current state of American politics, it's very hard to have that kind of coherent consensus. So does America need a grand strategy? Yes, it does. Is it going to get one? I don't know. But if it doesn't, we're all going to live less secure and less prosperous lives. I will just add one other point. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower had a great line where he said once that, you know, plannings are useless Planning is everything. Uh, and one of the reasons I think performing this effort to come, try and come up with grand strategies is that even if you do have to improvise occasionally when the unexpected happens, having thought through what you're trying to do, why it's important to do it, and how you're going to try an accomplishment beforehand leads you much better prepared for dealing with the unexpected. So that's why we need a grand strategy. So to quote Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask this. Let me flip this around a little bit uh, because we have about uh, maybe 13, 14 minutes left. Uh, In your views, uh, our most capable international challengers on on the stage today, do they have a a, a grand strategy, Russia and China? What, what, What do you think? Are they operating from some sort of a grand strategy? Uh, I think so, but Ron may disagree. Uh, I think China, or China, I'll do each one quickly. I think Russia's grand strategy is pretty simple. They want to stymie American efforts to uh, lead and promote a liberal world order. They sort of you know, throw as much sand in the gears of that enterprise as possible. And they want to prevent areas close to Russia from being used to threaten Russia, at least in their view. I think that's it. Full stop. Not much. Uh, not much else. Uh, in China's case, they they're basically imitating the United States in the 19th century. Uh, they want to build economic power. Uh, they want to gradually push other great powers away from them. In this case, push the United States out of East Asia the same way we pushed Great Britain out of the Western uh, Hemisphere. And they want to gradually build influence in a variety of international institutions, some of which already exist, some of which they are uh, creating. Um, so I think it's actually very similar. Oh, and, and while they're doing all that, stay out of trouble as much as possible <laughs> and hope that the United States keeps getting into as much trouble as it can. Yeah. And Ron, what do you think? Um, I think Steve is not. I, it's, I will want to say just one word about what Steve said sure, earlier. Absolutely. Not sort of, absolutely. We're not going to sort of continue the debate for <laughs> half an hour. But um, I will say that there is the difference. One of the challenges is that we often tend to reconstruct grand strategies after the fact. We observe what happened, right, whether for good or for ill. And that is the kind of thing. And we therefore construct a narrative of what must what were they actually trying to achieve, which leads us always to overestimate how much there was planning and to underestimate the role of improvisation. First of all, a, a moment of modesty, which I think Steve would agree with. Right. We neither of us is an expert on Russian or Chinese foreign policy. Right. So we are observing what they are doing and engaging in precisely that kind of effort, assuming they have a strategy. What would it look like? What do we see them doing and where does the balance of uh, Russian behavior seem to lie? Not everything that they do. I agree that a lot of what the Russians are trying to do is simply have a negative strategy. They're not trying to achieve very much because Russia doesn't have a whole lot of a future. Nope. Right. <laughs> Russia is a natural resource based economy with a shrinking population. This is not a recipe for growing influence in the international stage. They're trying to preserve what they have and limit the Western presence in their immediate zone as best we can tell. doesn't fit everything the Russians are doing, but fits a fair amount. To Steve's story about the Chinese, I think that's exactly 
right? With one important caveat, which makes it different from the 19th century United States, which is that their core objective is to preserve the unchallenged political power of the Communist Party domestically. Everything else that they do is secondary and derives from that. So that the way that they are approaching foreign policy is very much driven by that domestic priority. Notice what neither is seeking to do. Neither, and I think this is a fair statement, though, the, though some, there's some evidence that the Chinese are shifting in this regard. Neither at this time pretends to speak on, the behalf of, on behalf of any kind of universal ideology. Any larger sense of a sort of truth with a capital T. They have a much narrower conception, it appears, of the national interest, and in contrast to United to Americans, don't believe that there's that they possess truth with a capital T that they insist on spreading. So I'll just make one comment on China. They are in their fourteenth five-year plan right now. Uh, just kicked that one off recently. Uh, to me, as a career intelligence officer, that tells me that, that that they have some sort of a long-term plan that they're trying to execute, and they're they're reassessing every five years to what their long-term objectives are. Uh, Ron, you mentioned this earlier con- conceptually on grand strategy. You keep your eye on that North Star. Maybe that's what the Chinese Communist Party is is looking at, the, keeping their eye on the Red Star and reassessing every five years as they adapt their five-year plans. Uh, so, um, I'll, I'll, John, it is worth noting, I'm glad you brought that up, though, because studies of five-year plans, there's a brilliant political scientist at Yale, James Scott, who I believe just passed away this past, another one this past year, Steve, um, who wrote a brilliant book called Seeing Like a State on the history of these kinds of five-year plans. They don't work out very well. Nope. <laughs> uh, if they don't work out so well in the national economy, why do we think they're going to work out particularly well in foreign policy, which is even more complicated? It is very complicated. Uh, we just have a, a few minutes left. I want to ask each of you to just give us a brief uh, summary of, of the two books that I had mentioned earlier. Uh, Ron, you just uh, published recently the Oxford Handbook on Grand Strategy. This this is an appropriate uh, topic of discussion for today. Tell us a little bit more about that book. Well, the Oxford Handbook of Grand Strategy brings together uh, about 45 wonderful essays by brilliant colleagues on all aspects of grand strategy, its origins, its instruments, its challenges, its value, and thinking about the future. So it, I, of course, have my own contributions, some of which I've given voice to today to some degree. But it is, if, you're, uh, if your listeners are looking for more than an introduction, but looking for that PhD-level seminar on grand strategy, um, it's a great place to start, both with its advocates and its critics. And where can people acquire that book? Um, the internet nearest you. <laughs> is it on Amazon? Available on, on Amazon.com. It is. Uh, I, I, you know, I, unfortunately, I do not control its pricing. Right. <laughs> so it is, unfortunately, uh, as we say here in Minnesota, a little spending. Okay. And, and Stephen Walt, uh, The Hell of Good Intentions, which I think is an appropriate uh, book to talk about today, as we think about, you know, the, the efforts to match policy and strategy. Uh, what's the hell of good intentions about and, and where can readers find it? Uh, well, like uh, like all books, it's available on the Internet through Amazon and a variety of other uh, outlets. Um, uh, it was published, you know, by Farrar, Strauss and Drew in 2018. It's an extended critique of American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. And I was really trying to explain why uh, things had gone so badly, uh, given how optimistic everyone was in the early 1990s. The United States is in great shape. Uh 
Uh, we're in good terms with the other major powers. We think uh, the wind is at our back and the world is going to gradually uh, adapt and adopt uh, sort of market-based economies, democracy, liberal values, et cetera. And we're going to give it all a push. Uh, and you fast forward to you know, 2016, 2018, and none of these things work out well. Democracies in retreat around, around the world. The United States bogged down in a series of losing wars. We face a serious terrorist attack. Proliferation is continuing, etc. So the question is, what went wrong? And I argue that we had, in fact, under, uh, under Clinton, Bush, and Obama, uh, a, grand st- a commitment to a grand strategy of liberal hegemony, where we were going to try to remake as much of the world as possible in our image turn them into little Americas uh, peacefully, if possible, but occasionally uh, using military force. So the book explains, first of all, why that was a bad idea. Uh, and then second, attributes most of it to the stubborn uh, stubbornness of the American foreign policy establishment, which really liked that ambitious strategy, did not hold itself accountable and kept repeating it under both Democratic and Republican presidents. Um, and then there's a chapter on Trump where he comes in And as Ron indicated earlier, you know, very critical of what our foreign policy has been and very critical of the foreign policy establishment and uh, challenges all of these sacred cows and basically fails, uh, is unable to really shift. He shifts the style of American foreign policy in many ways. He does not shift the substance uh, very much uh, at all. And the book concludes with uh, with my own recommendations for how you could try to both uh, improve the foreign policy establishment, but more importantly, come up with a better grand strategy. All right, gentlemen, we just have about uh, four or five minutes left. I'm going to give each of you who are well-known, as I said, esteemed uh, a- academic scholars and strategic thought. Uh, Dr. Wall, I'll start with you. What three foreign policy hotspots have your attention these days and why? Well, three. Uh, one is obviously Ukraine, uh, where the Russians have uh, mobilized, you know, 100,000 or more troops and have at least threatened the possibility of some kind of invasion. Uh, it was uh, announced today that the United States and Russia are going to be holding talks uh, on all of this. I think this is consistent with what I said earlier, uh, an attempt to stop uh, what Russia sees as the progressive encroachment of NATO and others uh, on Russia's uh, borders. I don't think Russia is going to try to reconquer all of Ukraine and reabsorb it into a uh, into Russia. That would mean trying to run uh, 43 million Ukrainians who don't want the Russians there. But I think a limited grab could still happen uh, in support of pro-Russian separatists in the eastern part of the country. Um, uh, I think this is the result. This crisis is a result of uh, many different factors, including, uh, you know, sort of 25 plus years of foolish U.S. Uh, policy. But that's one. Uh, second is obviously Iran and its nuclear program. Uh, it is now increasingly clear that when uh, Donald Trump left the nuclear deal with Iran, this was a catastrophic blunder. Uh, Iran now has more uh, enriched uranium, more centrifuges operating, is much closer to actually being able to build a bomb than it was under the agreement, which it was abiding to, uh, and is leaving uh, Joe Biden with no good options uh, because it doesn't look like it's going to be possible to recreate the agreement. And if Iran decides to uh, move towards a bomb, the only way to stop them uh, temporarily would be military action. And the last thing the United States needs now is another war in the Middle East. And it would only convince Iran to eventually get the bomb itself. Uh, and then my third hotspot is the entire planet. And by hotspot, <laughs> I mean that literally. I yeah. think uh, climate change is, in fact, 
the great existential crisis that the world is facing. And everything we know about world politics tells us it's not going to be easy to solve it. So, you know, I think that those those are enough for any administration to worry about. And I'd love to see if Ron has other things to scare us. Yes. Go ahead, Ron. I just have one more. Those were, Steve, you've gotten, you have the ones on my list. Um, I would add to that, of course, Taiwan, right? And the concern over, I mean, and what all of what Ukraine, uh, Iran, and China, and the concern with Taiwan all have in common with that potential for escalation is, I think, the really grand American ambitions and our sense of that our national interest is involved all over the world. These are, if generally speaking, regional or major powers. Um, what's going on in their immediate vicinity. Uh, and so the potential for escalation there is rather because of the refusal, essentially, to acknowledge the legitimate security interests that others may have. And so I would rather see the United, as Steve says, says right, the great concern is the transnational one, climate change. Uh, and this is going to be, this is an awfully hard nut to crack, both because of direct hard conflicts of interest and because of free riding concerns. I, I well, it also gets at the, the time problem that, that uh, all of these other things, Ukraine, uh, Iran, Taiwan, all happen in the next year, two, three. Climate change is, uh, you know, is always happening now. But the big concerns are 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And that's easy for politicians today to try to ignore. So we're sort of like the, the proverbial frog in the pot, right? <laughs> we, we just, we're just, we'll, we'll kick that can down the road, as they say. Uh, unfortunately, gentlemen, yeah, exactly. Uh, gentlemen, we have come to the end of our show. Uh, this is the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Professor Stephen Walt and Professor Ron Krebs, thank you so much for the discussion today. Uh, you've certainly helped us co- to close out our first year of National Security This Week with a fantastic study of the concept of grand strategy as well as to help all of us to better understand the, the, the challenges our political leaders face when they must consider American national security interests. Uh, what do you have uh, on tap for the rest of your uh, winter holiday before you get into the school, the, the school year for the next term? Ron? I'm way behind oh, preparing my syllabi oh. for next term, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, and that will keep me busy for the rest of the week at least. Yeah. And Ron, what are you up to? Uh, the same and hopefully uh, hopefully a little travel, though this uh, supervillain called Omicron seems to be yeah. getting in the way of that. Yeah. Uh, is there any research that you're working on right now that you want to share very briefly? Uh, well, I'm still trying to finish off a paper with a colleague, uh, Danny Broderick, on uh, world order and how you could construct a more benevolent one. And, uh, and then I have a paper to write on transatlantic security cooperation vis-a-vis China uh, for our conference uh, this summer. Uh, I'll just say I am not optimistic about the prospects for meaningful cooperation, but perhaps I'll change my mind when I've done a little bit more work. And Ron, what are you working on? Well, I've got, um, you know, as your listeners may recall, I've got a sort of series of papers that I'm working on about public opinion and civil military relations. And at this very moment, writing one on why do we see variate? Why do we have why do people trust the military so much? It's not just an American story. It goes on everywhere, all around the world almost without regard to the military's performance. Um, But the big book that I'm writing, uh, and I hope to be able to return to long delayed, is about the effects of violent conflict and war on the democracies that wage them. How are they reshaped by that experience? Yeah, Great, Great topic. Indeed, indeed. And folks, that closes out this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Professor Stephen Walt, Professor Ron Krebs, thank you again so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, John. 
I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a loyal listener to National Security This Week throughout this first year. We'll be back on January 5th with our first show for 2022. Please join me when our guest will be retired State Department Foreign Service Officer Alan Carlson, and we'll be discussing the destabilization of the Balkans. So have a great finish to your week and a safe and wonderful New Year's Eve, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. The forced air system in your home keeps you comfortable year-round. But most people don't know. There's a lot more than air coming out of your ducts. Let the professionals at ServiceMaster by IAT get the dust, dirt, allergens, and even dust mites out of your ducts and out of the air you breathe so your family can breathe clean, healthy air once again. You have a choice of who to call when it comes to cleaning your ducts and improving the air you breathe. Make the right choice. Demand the best. Demand the yellow van. Call ServiceMaster. ServiceMaster by IAT, 877-945-0993. Hi, this is Barb letting you know that Professional Dental Group would like to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. We would like to introduce and welcome Dr. Bo Hoyam to our Norfield Dental family. Our outstanding dental care professionals will provide you with the most gentle and caring dental experience. The gift of dental health will never go out of style, and it's not too late to stop in to get that power toothbrush you've been dreaming of. Happy holidays from all of us at Professional